and no matter what Evan promised or how he begged, his offer had no takers. Turns out he did not invent the kazoo. Martha Washington invented the kazoo. Well then, come and stay with me. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, and it's always my pleasure to bring you these great stories. And, and always my pleasure when you tune in to bring them into your home and into your heart. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. No matter how fantastical the stories may be, the kind of storytelling sparked in your home among you and the people that you love, that kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. And today, we've got a lot coming up. We're going to hear a story spun out by the comical storyteller and musician Willie Claflin from a silly song written in 1927, a song that, after a time, became a staple at summer camps as a sort of campfire song. And we're going to hear a story from Dovey Thomason, the wonderful First Nations storyteller. It's an animal story, but it's got humans in it, too. In fact, you've heard Joseph Bruchak tell a version of the story on our show before, and you're going to love Dovey's telling of the bear child. But first, a story fragment. We're going to bring to you a story from the wonderful actress and storyteller Dolores Hydock. Dolores was born in Pennsylvania, lives now in Alabama. She has brought you tender and funny family stories here on the show. But today, she's going to take you in full character across the Atlantic Ocean and across centuries of time to the 13th century, deep in the heart of the medieval period. That's where this story comes from, though for many years it was lost. It came to light again in the early 1900s when an enormous manuscript filled with stories was discovered in Walleton Hall in Nottingham, England. It was discovered in a box marked unimportant documents. <laughs> and the manuscript contained, as we said, all kinds of stories, nearly 20 of them. Now, with the exception of the story we're talking about here, all the other stories in that manuscript existed elsewhere. But this story was new. No one had heard it before. No one had read it before. And it didn't appear in any other manuscripts, as far as anyone knew. The type of story that this is has a name. It's a roman. Now, that name in Old French used to mean of the Roman type or done in the Roman way. That makes sense, doesn't it? But then over time, the word came to mean something else. It came to mean in the common language. And then the meaning shifted again to mean in a common book. And then again to mean simply an adventure story. Now it's a word that you can use when you mean novel. So this is an adventure story. It's a roman. The word is related to another word you know too, romance, right? You can probably see the relationship. It's an old, old story, and it's called Le Roman de Silence, the adventure story of Silence. And Silence is a baby girl born to a noble couple, and this couple knows that they live in a time when women can't inherit any property. So they decide before Celance is ever born that if she is born as a girl, which of course she is, they'll disguise her as a boy so she can inherit her parents' wealth. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because that's the story. And you're going to hear just a little bit of it today because it's very long. You're going to hear about the world into which Celance is born. You're going to hear Dolores Hydock set the stage for this very, very old story. Dolores took the Roman de Celance and 
turned it into a one-woman play. And the part we're going to play for you is filled with intrigue and kings whose wisdom may be questionable, and there's a dragon in it, too. We're happy to bring you this little fragment of the story of Silence. Here's Dolores Haddock on The Appleseed. Once, a long time ago, there was a great king of England. Evan was his name, and if it weren't for Arthur, Evan is the one we'd be reading stories and poems about, for Evan was powerful and clever, and law was law. Under King Evan, you broke the law, he put you in jail, and you didn't get out until you was dead. That was the law. Some say he was wise. You be the judge. He was wise enough to put his friends in positions of power so that when he needed them, quite by coincidence, there they were, ready to help him. Wise? Well, one kind of wise. He was wise enough, too, to know when it was time to end a bloody war with the King of Norway. The war had raged on and on, cities torched, people slaughtered. What was the war about? No one even remembered. And one day, King Begon, Norway's leader told Evan, our hero so far, that if he would end the war, he could have the hand of his beautiful daughter, the lovely Princess Ufem, as his truly wedded wife. Now Evan, wise, remember, but human too, had had his eye on the lovely Princess Ufem all along and decided it was well worth declaring peace to have this beautiful woman as his own. And so, it was done. Alleluia, sala, trick familia. Alleluia, timpaniset, alleluia, sala. Can you imagine the kind of wedding they had? The festivities lasted a full year. Oh, they knew how to throw a party in those days. And sometime during that festive year, a count came to court. A wealthy man brought along his two grown daughters, his only children, twin girls, born within seconds of each other. 
Two of Evan's warriors married the girls, all part of the wedding feast, and when the ceremony was done, there they stood, man and wife and man and wife, each man declaring he had just married the older twin, the one who would inherit all her father's lands. Well, they argued and swore and shouted and fought until mere words weren't weapon enough, and they came to blows, each man so furious they equally wounded the other, and both men died, proving themselves right. Both dead, neither one willing to give a little to get a little, both willing to give all to get all, and so got nothing but a long, dark sleep. Well, did Evan's other warriors learn from all this? You'll be the judge. They began arguing among themselves about who was right, who was wrong, who was to blame for the two men's deaths. Oh, there'd have been more killing for sure, but Evan flew into a terrible rage. What loss must we suffer on account of these women? Oh, yeah, it was all the women's fault. Wasn't that obvious to you? No, said Evan. There will be no more of these arguments, for as long as I am king, no woman in this land will ever inherit property again. And he made that the law of the land. This wise king pleased with himself for such a sensible plan. It's a wonder we hadn't heard more about this wise king, isn't it? Well, one day, some time after that, the king and his men went off on a hunt, as kings did in those days. And while they were riding along, chatting and joking, a dragon charged into the middle of them, spun round in circles, spitting fire and venom in every direction and killing any man who came near. Thirty men he killed. Thirty men before taking a break to gobble up the bodies while Evan and his men hid in the woods. Oh, what shall we do? Evan said. He was known for being wise, remember, not brave. If any man will overtake the dragon and kill him, I will give him, I will give him a county and any woman in the kingdom as his wife. Oh, a county and a wife. Just for facing down a man-eating dragon, well, you can imagine how many men rushed up to take that offer. Exactly none. And no matter what Evan promised or how he begged, his offer had no takers. But, way in the back of that crowd of men, off in the shadows of that lonely wood, there was one man. Cador was his name. Nobody special, just a fellow with heart. A heart in love with the lovely Euphemia a beautiful young woman at court. Cador hears the king's promise, cares nothing about the county, only about the chance to ask for the hand of Euphemia in marriage. So, without saying a word to anyone, he slips away and does the deed. Kills the dragon! No blustery words, just bravery, and a loving heart does the trick. Cador stands there, the dead demon at his feet, dragon blood dripping from his gleaming sword, stands there trembling, not for the fearsome creature he just faced down, but for the awful terror that lies ahead, asking for the hand of the woman he loves. What if she doesn't care for him at all? Fact is, she does. She knows that. I know that. Now you know that, but he doesn't know that. Isn't it always the way? Cador worries so about all of this, by the time they get back to the castle, he's made himself deathly ill, all for the hope and despair of loving Euphemia. Or maybe it's from all the fire and venom that the dragon spit at him during their battle, but we'll say it's for the love, it makes for a better story. Back at the castle, King Evan asks Cador if he'd like his reward, and Cador, knees knocking, face pale, voice trembling, asks for the hand of Euphemia in marriage. The king agrees, as does Euphemia's father, 
A wealthy landowner with property as far as the eye can see. Euphemia's father agrees that Cador can marry his only child, and the two of them will manage all his lands until it can be inherited by their son. Because no daughter, remember, could ever inherit property again. So the two are married, quite happy, and by and by, Euphemia is great with child. They sit together, the two lovers, now husband and wife, sit there in the golden gleam of the firelight, talking about the happy future that awaits their much-loved, well-propertied son-to-be. And as the flames flicker to an orange glow, they sit in silence, neither one willing to speak of the unhappy future that awaits their much-loved, unpropertied daughter-to-be. And in the scarlet shadows of the last red embers, they look at each other with loving eyes and agree that if the child is a girl, they'll say it's a boy, and their silence will protect her rightful inheritance. Dolores Highduck with just the first part of the story of Silence, a one-person play that Dolores adapted from Le Roman de Silence, an adventure story from the 13th century. How does it turn out? Well, ask yourself, do you think the parents will be able to fool people about the true identity of Silence forever? It's a story filled with more intrigue and revenge and adventure than a Shakespeare play. And speaking of Shakespeare, that idea of a girl having to dress up as a boy to escape danger or to live a life that she otherwise wouldn't be able to live is an old storytelling device. Think of Rosalind in Shakespeare's As You Like It, who dressed as a boy named Ganymede and hides her identity from Orlando, who loves her in the forest of Arden. Or think of Twelfth Night, in which Viola, shipwrecked, on the coast of Illyria, dresses as the boy Cesario to get a job as a servant in the house of Count Orsino. And you don't even have to go to fictional stories to find this storytelling device. Think of the real-life pirate Mary Reed, who dressed as a man to escape detection as a member of a pirate crew, one of the most famous and feared female pirates on the seven seas, along with her pal Anne Bonnie. Or think of Mulan, if you want. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Willie Claflin will tickle your funny bone with a totally made-up story about George Washington, a story spun from an old camp song. You don't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed Before the Break. You heard just a little bit of a much longer story. The piece you heard and the longer play in which it occurs was adapted by Dolores Hydock from Le Roman de Silence, the adventure story of Silence, a story that goes all the way back to the 13th century and was discovered in a box labeled Unimportant Documents. <laughs> well... Up next, we're going to have some fun with Willie Claflin. He makes up this story in which George Washington is kind of a bumbling comic character whose wife, Martha, was really the brains of the outfit. The story doesn't take its cue from actual history very much, but rather from a song written in 1927, a song that goes, 
Washington at Valley Forge, freezing cold, but up spoke George with vododio, vododio, do. As you can tell, you won't expect much of a reliable history education from Willie in this performance. There's not much true here, except that George Washington did have a wife, and her name was Martha. But what he lacks in historical accuracy, he makes up for in laughs. That's what this story's about. Here's Willie Claflin, recorded in a live performance before an enthusiastic crowd. It's part of a story called The George Washington Method for Blues Ukulele. Willie Claflin on the Appleseed. I went to Harvard University. I was supposed to be a lawyer, but something strange happened to me when I got there. I was a history major, and time came to do a thesis. And I thought, well, what am I going to do a thesis about? And I thought, well, I could do one maybe on George Washington, because everybody has written so much on George Washington, it would be a real challenge to try to think of something new that I could write about him. So I did research, long, long time, and finally came across this book way back in the stacks of the Widener Library at Harvard University. It was called The Secret Life of Martha Washington. It's a pamphlet kind of thing. And um, in this book, in this book, I learned some amazing stuff. I learned that George had no abstract conceptual ability. That means that when it came to something like trying to formulate battle plans, he was not able to do that sort of thing. It was actually Martha Washington who drew up all the major battle plans of the Revolutionary War, never given credit for it. And I began to realize there had been a patriarchal rewriting of history which had eliminated all of women's contributions to American history, either consciously or unconsciously, written them out of all the textbooks that we've been studying, all the histories. None of Martha's contributions were there, especially the fact that she'd done all these battle plans, and because George was dyslexic, she had to draw him right to left. (laughs) Not an easy thing to do. Also turned out that George had no small muscle coordination. He couldn't fix things like guns and door latches. He would come whining to Martha the way he did. He had low blood sugar and got depressed easily. (laughs) He'd say something like, my gun, and she would be able to fix it. She had this kind of mechanical aptitude, really practical mechanical aptitude. Well, it was kind of shocking because I realized despite what I had learned about the father of my country, starting over here with his lack of abstract conceptual ability and going all the way over here to this lack of small muscle coordination, George kind of covered the whole spectrum of mental ineptitude. It was kind of shocking. And then in the last chapter of the book, now I'd always been told, along with learning about George's false teeth, I'd always been taught that he had invented the kazoo. Turns out he did not invent the kazoo. Martha Washington invented the kazoo. What happened was this. During that terribly cold winter at Valley Forge, when the Continental Army was falling apart, and there were near riots among the troops, and the war effort was just about to collapse entirely, George would go from tent to tent, cabin to cabin. This is before adequate shelter had been built at Valley Forge. And he'd try to cheer his men up. Now, wandering tent to tent, cabin to cabin, the only thing that really cheered him up was smoking his pipe. But the freezing precipitation extinguished his smoking mixture. So he went whining to Martha the way he usually did. I pipe. And she said, well, George, if you just stick a little piece of birch bark over the end of your pipe, it'll keep the freezing rain and snow from extinguishing your tobacco. And he tried that, and it worked. Well, 
serendipitously, he also was a kind of a compulsive hummer. He would hum to himself all the time. I think it was to cheer himself up, even though things were going so badly. You know, because we know, being Californians, it's a really hard adjustment being a Yankee to come out here and get used to California thought. But I learned out here that the small musculature of my face was directly connected to my emotional state so that I could be feeling as crummy as possible and all I had to do was smile. Even Thich Nhat Hanh refers to it as mouth yoga. I feel terrible. I wish I were dead. But after a while, you don't wish that anymore. You feel great for no reason. Well, I think that's the reason that he hummed to himself. I think part of it was, I whistle a happy tune, and no one will know I'm afraid. I think that was part of the psychology of it, too. Anyway, when he hummed through the pipe with a piece of birch bark over the end of it, it gave out what we now recognize as a kazoo-like sound. It vibrated. All of his men thought that he had invented this instrument, and wanting to emulate the buckskin general, they all stuck pieces of birch bark over the end of their pipes, too. And pretty soon, everybody in Valley Forge was playing these kazoos. Now, if you've learned something incorrectly, if you, too, are a victim of the patriarchal rewriting of history, if you've got this wrong idea in your mind that George Washington invented the kazoo, the only thing you can really do to get that idea out of your mind is some kind of shocking event has to take place to alter the synaptic firing in your brain. Because when you repeat to yourself over and over and over again something that isn't true, it's almost like water digging a water course deeper and deeper. It's hard to jar that idea out of your mind. Well, in the back of the book, I found the perfect vehicle. It's this song called Washington at Valley Forge. It will provide the mnemonic device that will help you remember that Martha, not George, invented the kazoo. So, the song, it was in that old kazoo tablature. It was kind of hard to read, that kind of shape note kind of thing, you know? But I did the best I could deciphering it, and this is the, how it went. It went like this. It went, Washington at Valley Forge, freezing cold, but up spoke George. He said, bo do do bo do 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 Nobody knows why George yelled, bo do 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 That's not... But apparently, talking about synaptical misfiring, apparently George had a strange illness that we would now recognize kind of like a benign, maybe a benign form of Tourette's, in which in the middle of a perfectly cogent address about troop movement and the economic realities of the war, he would just break into a stream of meaningless phonemes. No one ever wrote him down. So, Washington at Valley Forge, freezing cold, but up spoke George. He said, bo do bo do do Crazy words, crazy tune, all at George would croon and spoon. bo do bo do do On his ukulele, daily, he would strum, beat along, bomb, dancing, prancing. Then he'd holler, red hot mama. Now, no one knows exactly why George yelled Red Hot Mama. Turns out it was just a practical kind of mechanical thing. He combined his lack of abstract conceptual ability with his lack of small muscle coordination and rammed the wrong end of a lit pipe in his mouth. With this oath, he came out with it. So... 
luckily for us, that's the mnemonic device that will help you remember that Martha, not George, invented the kazoo. So we all need just to yell Red Hot Mama as loudly as possible when we get to that part of the song. And I'll try to play the kazoo solo part pretty much the way George played it, because the tablature's there in the back of the book. I'll try to replicate that as closely as I can. Let's just rehearse that part. If you would just all, it has to be really kind of staccato. If you could all just yell Red Hot Mama on the count of three, loud and really fast. Let's try this. One, two, three. (laughs) Okay, we'll just fit it into the song here. Washington at Valley Forge, freezing cold, but up spoke George. He said, Bo-do-de-o, Bo-do-de-o, do Crazy words, crazy tune, all that George would croon and spoon. Bo-do-de-o, Bo-do-de-o, do On his ukulele, daily, he would strum, beat along, bum, dancing, prancing, get ready. Then he'd holler, Crazy words, crazy tune, all that George would croon and spoon was Bo-do-de-o, Bo-do-de-o, do Ukulele daily, he would strum, beat along, bum, dancing, prancing, last chance. Then he'd holler, crazy words, crazy tune. All that George would croon and spoon was bo do do bo do 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 bo do do do. Yeah. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. (laughs) Willie Claflin, who spun that whole tall tale about George Washington and his family life, from an old song. The song, by the way, is called Crazy Words, Crazy Tune. You heard those words in Willie's performance. Crazy Words, Crazy Tune. And it was written by Milton Egger and Jack Yellen. You, know, you may not know those guys, but you might have heard some of their famous songs. Songs like, Happy days are here again. The sky above is clear again. Let's sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. They wrote that one. And they also wrote, Ain't she sweet? See her walking down the street. Now I ask you very confidentially, Ain't she sweet? And the song you heard Willie Claflin sing wasn't originally about George Washington at all. It was just about a guy who can't stand hearing his neighbor play ukulele all day long. He sings of this guy, his neighbor, sits around all night long, same old words to every song. Vododio, vododio, do. But you know what happens to catchy songs? Kids start to sing them at camp. That's what happened to this song. And soon there were more and more verses. Verses about George Washington, like you heard Willie sing, but also a verse that went, Napoleon, he marched his men, turned them round and said to them, Vododio, vododio. 
rodeo do. And there's another verse that goes, Take Paul Revere on his midnight ride, jumped on his horse and loudly cried, Vododio, Vododio do. And there's even a verse that says, Mark Antony, way back when, said friends, Romans, and countrymen, Vododio, Vododio do. It's one of those camp songs that never ends and has a million verses. You know the kind of song. You've sung that kind of song at camp. And this one goes way back to 1927. And you heard Willie Claflin talk about George Washington and the invention of the kazoo. Well, that's totally made up, of course. The kazoo, by the way, wasn't invented by George Washington or Martha Washington. There's an old story that the kazoo was invented in 1840 by a guy named Alabama Vest. But that story was mostly told by a comic musical group called the Kaminsky International Kazoo Quartet. And who knows if they can be believed. For sure, a guy named Simon Seller got a patent for a kazoo in 1879. He didn't call it a kazoo. He called it a toy trumpet. The first guy to get a patent for something called a kazoo was earlier, Warren Herbert Frost, in 1833. And there was a patent in 1902 as well, a little later on, for a guy named George, no less, but not Washington. This guy's last name was Smith, and his kazoo looked like the one you might recognize, the one you might carry in your pocket. And the history of the kazoo, that's a good story. It's just not a George Washington story. Willie Claflin knows that, of course. He's not out for historical education in that last story, the George Washington method for blues ukulele. He's out for laughs, and he got them from us, maybe from you too. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story you'll love about a boy, his wicked uncle, and a bunch of forest animals, including bears. Stick around for Dovey Thomason on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a bit of a story called The George Washington Method for Blues Ukulele, a live performance by the terrific comic storyteller and musician Willie Claflin. And you know Willie Claflin partly because he's the human storytelling companion of Maynard Moose. We've played both Willie's and Maynard's work on the show. And up next, you're going to recognize this story, or maybe you will. We've played a version of it, a version by the great storyteller Joseph Bruchak. But stories like this one belong to many tellers. And we love this version by Dovey Thomason, too. It's a story called The Bear Child. And in this story, a boy loses his family, and there's no one to take him in but his wicked uncle. And when the uncle decides to get rid of the boy by taking him out to the forest and, well, trapping him in a cave, that's when the story really begins. Before we get to the story, we want to remind you that you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. In fact, you'll find an archive there of all of the episodes of the show, more than a thousand episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. And of course, you can find us by Googling the Appleseed podcast and you can subscribe for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. We're talking about full hours. Hour-long episodes, like the one you're listening to now, filled with stories for you and your family. But we're also talking about podcast-only Appleseed 
extras, mini-episodes of the show for when you have only a few minutes and you want to fill that few minutes with a great story or a piece of music or a great conversation about storytelling. So visit us there, too. You can also download the BYU Radio app, all kinds of ways to listen to the Appleseed. Let's get to that story, shall we? Here it is, The Bear Child, told by the great First Nations storyteller Dovey Thomason. Here's Dovey on the Appleseed. of a boy and into the life of this small boy came the saddest thing that can happen to a child for a sickness struck his village and took his parents and so the child was without his mother and father but in the old ways in the old days no child was truly orphaned no child could be without a family It was the custom that the old women of the village would send out runners to find news about the family of that child who would be the mother and father of that boy now that his parents were gone. The old women heard that this boy had an uncle, a mother's brother. Now, a mother's brother is a special relative, very much like a father to a boy. And the women sent these runners to the village where they heard that mother's brother lived to come back and report to them of what they learned of him. The runners returned. They had asked about this man, and they had good things to say. He's a good man, they said. The people in that village think well of him. He is strong and a hunter. A good hunter. Each day he leaves the village hunting, and when he returns, he always returns with meat. Meat he never eats until all have been fed. Many are the families with no fathers, the old ones unable to hunt, who were cared for by this man. The old women smiled and shook their heads. Good. The boy would go and live with his uncle. What the old women didn't know What the people of the village could not see was that inside his home, this man had a crooked mind. This man changed when the boy came, and his mind grew more crooked still. When he saw the boy, he did not even call him by his name. He could not even give him that respect or dignity, furthermore the love and affection that the boy was missing since his parents' death. He would turn to the boy. Hey, you, come here. And the boy would come running to him, hoping that if he tried hard enough, if he did what his uncle wished, his uncle would give him the love and affection that he so wanted. 
but he never saw affection in his uncle's eyes. His uncle fed him, he took care of him and clothed him, but he never fed his heart and spirit, and that was what the boy so much needed. One night, when the uncle was home, alone in his lodge, he began to think about the boy and how his life had changed since the boy had come to live with him. His crooked mind was getting more and more crooked as he paced from side to side in his lodge. This boy is a problem. Before he came here, I could go off alone, just me and my dog, hunting in the forest. No one looked at me, not the way he does. The way he looks at me, it is as though he wants something from me. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I do not have it. The boy is a bother to me. I will be rid of him. Tomorrow, I get rid of the boy. And so thinking this crooked-minded thought, the next day the uncle called the boy to him. Hey, you, come here. The boy came running, eager to please. Yes, uncle? Today we are going hunting. Hunting? The boy's heart jumped in his chest. This is what boys did with their uncles. This is what the boy was missing. Hunting? But uncle, where is your dog? My dog is important to me. Let my dog rest. Today you will be the dog. Now you would think that a small boy would object to being called a dog, but not this boy. He tried to be a good dog. He ran ahead of his uncle, and though his nose was not as sharp as a dog's nose, he sniffed for prey. And though his eyes were not as keen as a dog's eyes, he watched ahead. Even on those few moments when he was able to chase up a bird, he noticed his uncle did not draw his bow and arrow. He followed his uncle deeper and deeper into the forest until they were far from the village. And then his uncle stopped and said, Hey, my dog would see what I am looking at. Do you not see it? The boy looked, but he could see nothing. There was a small clearing there in the forest, but he could not see what his uncle was pointing toward. There is a cave. My dog would know that cave was there. Already my dog would be running into that cave to chase out the animals who live there for my hunt. You are the dog. Go into the cave. Now do you think a little boy would want to go into such a cave? No child would want to crawl into a place where there could be such danger, but this boy, he could not say no to his uncle. So slowly he crawled into that cave, that cave that smelled of all the animals who had lived there, and he was afraid, afraid he would run into a bobcat, a bear, or a mountain lion. Finally he bumped into something in the cave, and he almost screamed before he realized it was the back wall of the cave. There was nothing there. He turned and called out to his uncle, Uncle, there is nothing in here. I am coming out. And he started to crawl toward that circle of light, which was the opening of the cave. And as he grew near, suddenly there was a rumbling and shaking in the earth. And then suddenly the cave grew dark. The boy crawled to where the opening should have been and felt a great rock sealing the opening. He called out, Uncle? Uncle? There has been a rock slide. I am trapped in this cave. But there was no answer. 
he cried out again, Uncle! Uncle! I am trapped in here. Save me or I will die. But again there was no answer. And as the boy sat there in the darkness, he began to understand that if there had been a rock slide, it had been caused by his uncle. He was frightened and sad when he had this thought, frightened to think that he might die in the dark in that cave, but sad, sad to think that a, a grown man could think such crooked-minded plans about a child. As sad as he grew sitting there, suddenly he began to think of his mother and his father, and he felt so afraid and so alone, and that is when he remembered his mother's words, My son, I have a song for you, a song to sing if you are ever lonely and need a friend. That song came to his mind then, as his mother's voice had. Now he needed a friend. Now he began to sing softly. Wehana, 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 hey. Wehana, 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 hey. Wehana, 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 hey. We, hey, oh, we, hey, oh. The song made him feel better. It was almost like having his mother and father there beside him, and that comfort and that thought made him have an idea. Perhaps if he sang the song louder, he would get more courage. <gasps> Perhaps if he sang the song loudly, someone would hear him. It would call a friend. He began to sing louder. Wehana, 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 hey. 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 Weheyo, weheyo. Weheyo, He thought he heard a voice coming back to him, voices answering him. Perhaps there was a friend on the other side of this rock. He decided to sing as loudly as he could. Now was time to call for help. Wehana, 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 hey. 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 As a voice answered him, suddenly rocks started flying in every direction, and sunlight flooded into the cave. He had been heard. He had a friend. He was saved. The boy crawled out into the light, but for a second he was blinded. He rubbed his eyes to clear them, and then he saw the people. <gasps> he was surrounded by people, but they were not people like him. He was surrounded by the animal people. Before he could think of what to say, he looked out at the faces of all the different animals, and suddenly a little animal in front of him, a little old woodchuck, hobbled forward. Well, what were you doing in a cave, little boy like you, 
all alone? Where is your family? Sighing, the boy started to explain of the sickness that had come to his village and taken his parents. Oh, she said, that is sad. These are the things that happen. So, now who is your family? And where are they? Why have they left you alone in a cave? And now the boy began to tell her the story of the uncle. The uncle with a crooked mind who came up with a plan to throw a child away. <gasps> oh, oh, that is sadder still, said the old woodchuck. Hmm, I think you need a new family. So, who will take the boy? The boy needs a family, a mother, a father, brothers and sisters, someone. Come take the boy. Speak up. Oh, not me. No, 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 no. I'm too old. I will grandmother the boy, but who will be his family? The first one to come forward was Little Mole. She was shy, and it was hard for her to speak in front of the other animals. Her shyness had come from her life deep within the earth, and it took her a while before she could even speak. Uh, um, well, uh, just... Uh, just uh, oh, I will take... I will take the boy. I, I will take the boy. I, I would like a child in the tunnels with me living in the earth. Oh, it is sweet in the earth where I live. Do, do boys like tunnels? Would you like to live with me? I will teach you to dig tunnels. We dig with our long, sharp claws. We live in the earth where it is sweet and dark and quiet. I will treat you well. I will feed you the fattest and the juiciest of the grubs and worms. Grubs and worms, the boy thought. Oh, he could not eat grubs and worms, but now he could hear his mother's voice again. Different people have different ways, my son. And though a people's ways are not for you, you must still show respect for them. He tried to think of something respectful to say. Little mother, um... I would like to take your offer, but it is generous indeed, but look at my fingers. I have no sharp claws. I would not be able to dig through the earth, making tunnels such as yours. I am afraid I would not make a good mole. And so now it was little Squirrel who spoke up. Well, then, come and live with me. You would like to live in the trees? I can teach you to climb. Come, we will climb, we will climb, I will feed you. Acorns and nuts, acorns and nuts, it is good. We sleep high in the branches. Climbing the tree sounded good to the boy. But a diet of acorns and nuts? No, this was not the life for him. He looked at the little squirrel and said, I am sorry, your offer is generous, but look at me. I do not have the hands or legs to climb as you do. I could not live the life of a squirrel. I am sorry. Your offer is generous. Now it was old Uncle Beaver's turn to step up. Well, then, come and stay with me. I'll teach you to swim. Swimming's good. You like to swim. Boys like to swim. I know they do. We will swim. We'll swim and dive and cut things down, build new things. It's a good life. You like to be a beaver, and I'll feed you not grubs and worms. Good for her. It's good for her. Acorns, he can have them, but we, <laughs> we eat saplings and bark. Saplings and bark, the boy thought. Swimming had sounded so good, but now he would have to find a way. Um, Uncle Beaver, your offer is very kind, but 
Look at my fingers. I have no webs between my fingers. I would not be a swimmer who could keep up with you. And my teeth? I could never cut down trees. No, my uncle, I am afraid I would not make a good beaver. One by one, the other animals came up. The life of the porcupine, the rabbit and the deer, these were not the lives for a boy. He thought there would be no place for him in the forest until he heard a voice speak, and as soon as he heard her, he knew who it was who had saved him. It was Mother Bear. Well, then, I'll take the boy. I already have two, a little boy, a little girl. What is one more? Come, boy, you will be a bear and live with us. Our life is good. We walk easy on this earth. We take our time. We enjoy the beauty. We roll down the hills. We swim. We climb. Our life is a good life. It sounded good to the boy. Um, what do you eat? he asked. <laughs> Look at me. We eat good. We eat honey and fish and nuts and berries. I will be a bear, the boy cried out. And so it was. He went to live with the bears. And life was just as his mother bear had promised him. He had a brother and sister who loved to climb and swim and roll down the hills and play. Any time he wanted to play, his brother and sister were eager. But they played rough. So rough that often as they played, he felt himself getting scratched by their sharp claws. But soon he noticed that from each scratch, black fur began to appear until soon he was covered with a coat of thick black fur and began to look just like his brother and sister. Soon he began to think and speak in the language of bears and all but forgot he had once been a human child. His mother taught him about life in the forest, the love, the comfort of a family with the bears, but also of the danger for the bears in the forest. And there was only one. Man, she said, hunters, though most of the hunters are too loud, too foolish, or too greedy to catch the bear, there are some we must be aware of. And so the boy, traveling with his mother and brother and sister, learned to identify the hunters who were too loud, the hunters she called by names like Heavy Foot and Flappy Jaws, the hunters who were careless, who she called drops his weapons and falls into the lake. These were hunters he laughed at, hunters who were not worthy to catch a bear. But one day, as he was traveling with his mother and brother and sister, he saw his mother stop in front of him. The fur on her neck bristled, her ears twitched. She was holding herself at complete attention, listening. He listened. He heard nothing. He looked at his brother and sister. They were listening just as intently. Suddenly he heard it. Two footsteps. Four footsteps. Two footsteps. Four footsteps. His mother turned to him. Run, run, children, it is two-step, four-step, we are in danger, quickly run. He ran after his brother and sister, his mother behind him, until at last they found a great hollow log. Into the log, his mother said, hide, they are behind us. And that is when the boy heard the howling of a dog and knew two-step, four-step was a hunter, a hunter with a dog, a dog who was tracking them. They hid in the log. They could barely breathe. They listened. They heard nothing. 
For a second, the boy dared hope that the hunter and his dog had gone on, and then he smelled smoke. Smoke, and he heard... It was the hunter and his dog just outside of the log where they were hiding. They had started a fire and were fanning the smoke into the log to choke them and chase them out. Suddenly, from deep inside the boy came the memory of the language of people, of two-legged humans, and he cried out, Put out that fire! You are scaring my family! The fire was put out. The smoke stopped. Now, not thinking of himself, the boy pushed and crawled out of the log. Leave us alone. You are scaring us. Go, go. You are scaring my family. And looked right into the eyes of his uncle. The uncle was just as surprised to hear the voice of a boy coming out of a bear. But even more so, he recognized that voice. He reached out his hand. My boy, nephew, is that you? And when he touched the boy bear on his shoulder, the fur fell away, and there stood the child again. It is you. You are alive. I had gone back to the village, and the people saw in my eyes I had done a crooked-minded thing. They helped me, and I regretted what I had done. I came back to set you free, but found the tracks of animals. I thought you had been eaten. I thought I would live forever with this terrible thing I had done. But now I find you are alive. Will you forgive me, my boy? Will you come back and live with me? The boy looked at his uncle. Still with the eyes of a bear, but the heart of a boy, he could see it was true. His uncle was changed. His heart and mind were straight and good. Yes, I can forgive you, uncle, but... This is my family. I have a family here. How could I leave this family? Your family may come with me, said his uncle. I am a hunter, but I will hunt the bear no more if the bears return to the village with me. He stood as the bears stepped forward by the boy and took a look at the uncle. And they seemed able as well to see that the uncle was speaking the truth and that his heart was good. And so the boy smiled and said, Yes, uncle, I will come back. I will live with you. And so it was that the boy returned to the village. And the old people say that in that lodge, a good heart lived where that uncle and his boy became like father and son. And that behind them in the forest lived his mother bear, his brother and sister, always present, never again hunted, always keeping watch. And they say the bears surround the villages and are outside our city still, always keeping watch to be sure that no one treats a child with less love and care than a mother bear would give her young. Hey,
Dovey Thomason with The Bear Child here on The Apple Seed. That's a story, as we mentioned, that has uh, a lot of versions, and it's a story that belongs to many tellers. And one of the things I love about Dovey's version of that story is that by the end of the tale, the villains are all gone, not because they've been routed or killed, but because they've been changed. The uncle, for example, remains in the story, but he's not wicked anymore. He's not a villain. He's changed. I love that about Dovey's telling of the bear child, along with so many other things. It's been such a pleasure to bring you that story, along with Willie Claflin's The George Washington Method for Blues Ukulele, and at the top of the hour, that story by Dolores Hydock, just a story fragment, really, of the Roman de Solance, the adventure story of Solance. A medieval story goes all the way back to the 13th century. This hour was written by Karanina Munyu. Our audio engineer is Stuart Foster, our producer Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Pleasure to have you with us, and we'll see you next time on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.